KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast, featuring in-depth one-on-one interviews with mission-driven entrepreneurs, renowned thought leaders, and game changers committed to ideas, innovation, and getting the heck out of the building. Our radio show and podcast eliminate the struggle, breakthroughs, and exceptional outcomes game changers bring to industries organizations and lives now hosted by tom dioro principal of accurate and retired colonel pete newell ceo of bmnt thank you charlotte and for our guests today please welcome Teresa smetzer vice president of national security programs at salesforce Teresa is previously the director of digital futures at the central intelligence agency's Directorate of digital innovation, uh, where she began her career at the CIA uh, as an analyst, technologist, uh, and senior manager before moving into other roles over a 17-year period. She has over 30 years of combined experience in the private sector and the CIA and was awarded the CIA's Distinguished Intelligence Medal in 2001. Teresa earned a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and a master's degree in chemical engineering from the University of Texas at Austin. Hook them. <laughs> uh, for more information, you can visit Teresa Smetzer's LinkedIn uh, profile at www.linkedin.com. You know, I was going to ask her something funny, but I'm trying to figure out how a chemist became an intelligence officer. Um, Teresa, thanks That's so much funny. for joining us. And, and don't don't feel a need to explain that one. But how um, about to start us off with, with something funny? Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Tom. And Happy New Year to everyone. Happy New Year. You know, I think, thanks. I think funny is kind of relative. I, I, uh, I grew up, my dad was a professor of veterinary medicine. I'm the oldest. I thought everybody loved technology and, and science as much as I did and was horrified to learn when I got to college that, in fact, there weren't really many women in those fields. And so I was a bit of an anomaly. There was five women in a class of 100 at chemical engineers at University of Illinois, and I just couldn't figure out what was wrong with people. So I asked somebody one day, where are all the women? And they all looked at me and said, oh, they're, they're down in the English building. And I was like, what? What is that? So, you know, that was sort of my first rude awakening to the fact that maybe I was a little different than other people. I don't know. Um, and since then, I've confirmed many times over that I am, in fact, a freak in many ways. But I love it. I've embraced it. <laughs> I think you and Charlotte would love each other. <laughs> and they're both <laughs> University of Texas. I hate these two brilliant women whose backgrounds don't read anything like what, what you get uh, when you, you, know, you sit yeah. down. Um, so I, I'm, yeah, I'm going to take that and run with it a little bit. I, I, I think sure. the, yeah, talking about innovators and entrepreneurs and what a, uh, an amazing, diverse background of, of people it is and – and I, I've discovered that many of them um, fall into this entrepreneurship thing not because they, they have some technical expertise, they didn't, but because they're so different from the crowd that they're constantly looking for something new to work on. Um, you know, I, and I've heard you say it before, but the, the idea that 
you can be both blessed and cursed by the innovation bug. Um, kind of cuts both ways. But, but what's, what's your version of that? So it's interesting. I started, I went to industry for a bit, but started at CIA pretty much right out of college. And to be honest, I went in thinking, well, who would want to work for the government? But I want to move to the East Coast. I'm going to do this for a bit until I figure out what I want to do when I grow up. And I got hooked. I mean, it didn't take months until I was hooked. Um, And what I discovered early on, and partially the problem-solving thing, I guess, but is that the the blessing was I could always see how to do things better, how to use technology or data better, how to think differently about solving problems. That's what really excited me. And so I often found myself uh, involved in projects or leading projects that were some sort of innovation initiative, uh, which was great. I loved it. The curse was, particularly years ago, that I was often ahead of myself. I was often coming up with ideas that were maybe well-founded, but were really not acceptable by the culture, or there wasn't sufficient executive sponsorship, or the resources weren't there, or nobody had really thought about the business process changes that had to go along with, with innovation. And so many of the things I was involved in earlier in my career, while I found it immensely rewarding, uh, it didn't end up coming to what I think would have been considered fruition. So that's kind of the blessing and the curse. The good news for me, though, is that really launched my career as a as an innovator and technologist, which is really my passion. So that's kind of the blessing and the curse. So I, you know, it's interesting, and I'm gonna I'm gonna flip back and forth a little bit because you spent a long time in government service, and then you left, yeah. started your own company, sold the company, and then somebody managed to convince you to go back. So can, right. let's let's talk about first the the decision to leave and kind of launch your own company. Um, what what went on there? And then, and I'm really interested, you know, from personally from a personal aspect of what um, what that felt like first making the decision to leave, and then the the second one was okay. Now I'm going to launch my own company. So when I left government, it wasn't very widely accepted, particularly at CIA. So you just didn't do that. I mean, it was most people signed up for a lifelong career and. So it was unusual, I can tell you. Um, for me, it was a very personal decision for a variety of reasons. I had two small children who I felt needed me, and I was becoming more and more uh, enmeshed in my career, and I felt I couldn't do both. So it really had nothing to do with wanting to leave government. It was really more I felt like my, my kids and my family needed me. So interestingly, I didn't start a, my company right away. I went and worked for a couple of companies to get some experience. And then I realized that, um, what the heck, you know, I can do my own thing. And so I started my own uh, sort of management consulting company oriented around helping intelligence or national security uh, um, organizations think about how to use data and technology better. And I just you know, my, for me, my passion showed through, and I actually, ironically, had more flexibility for my with my kids than when I was in government, but I always had this idea that at some point I would go back. So, you know, I was very successful, uh, fortunately, and was able to 
sell my company and then do investing and uh, work with, you know, my real passion, which is working with smaller companies to help them figure out how to market or present what they do back to the government in a way that would be compelling. Um, and then when, when John Brennan became the director, John and I actually worked together very closely early in my career. You know, I got this idea that I should go back. That was the time I should go back to government. My kids were grown, things were at a good place. And so I reached out and, uh, started the conversation and so it was just an awesome opportunity to go back and bring not just my first government experience but industry and other things I've done back to government and now we're we're trying to push more of that sort of transition back and forth between government and industry which is so important so that's that's kind of my history and uh, it was one of the best jobs I ever had so it was really the right decision for me in retrospect so you know, and I'm going to say you're, you're fairly unique in the fact that, you know, first pretty successful in the government to begin with, um, uh, launched the company, were successful with the company, went back to the government at a much different level, um, right. pretty successful there, and, and now have transitioned into, you know, the senior management role in the corporate world. And, and each of those domains is, and I'll call them radically different, but I think the skills of entrepreneurs and, and you know, really innovative people are, are quite different in each one of them. It is, can you think of, and I was going to ask about traits, but really what are the, what are the skills and traits that were particularly necessary, useful, or beneficial kind of across each one of those? And then are any of them consistent all across the board? I mean, I... Yeah. Yeah, good question. So how do I answer that? So I think I read something recently about what makes a good innovator, which is kind of a broad... Yeah, generic. I figured that one out. Everybody, yeah. <laughs> everybody thinks they're an innovator, right? It's like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. You know, how do you define what an innovator is? But this description I thought was pretty good. It's one part creativity... It's one part problem solving, and it's one part some domain or functional expertise taken together. And so for me, it's, uh, I've always been attracted, even as a kid, to problem solving and being able to figure things out and apply different skills and access different people to solve problems. Well, those really fit across all of the things I've done during my career. The creativity piece is harder, right? It's not, I'm not an artist. I have no creative abilities in that dimension. It's really the ability to see the art of the possible. Well, again, those, those, that skill really applied equally across my government and industry roles. And then, of course, problem solving. How do you translate that? And then how do you have apply your domain expertise to be able to translate that into something that people can see hey, this is how this might work, and how do we get from where we are to where we need to go? And, you know, the, the one piece that I would say I've learned the hard way is really critical, which I fully understand a lot of people don't have, is I'm absolutely fearless. Tell me I can't do something, I just dare you. Love That's, it. you know, and so that fearlessness, that ability to say, you know what, I don't have this all figured out, but it's really interesting and it's something that I'm passionate about and 
I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to get a good group of people, a diverse group of people around me to just tackle this problem. And so that sort of associated with that is the continuous learning, right? How do you, it's not just fearlessness randomly. It's also then continuing to learn and expose yourself to techniques or methodologies or approaches or best practices. And, and that is what has really sort of fueled my kind of what am I going to do next, right? Like, this, oh, I did this other thing. That was pretty cool. I enjoyed it. Now, how do I take that and apply it in a different way? And so that's kind of been my evolution of, you know, which I didn't figure out till pretty far into the game, by the way. It's not something that I started out saying, here's the game plan. Hmm. Where it's, do you think it comes from? It just sort of evolved. Um, Sorry to interrupt, Teresa, but it's no, fascinating. No, Where does that fearlessness come from, from your... Yeah, so, you know, I'm not a sociologist or a psychologist. I think part of it's inherent, you know, for sure. But, you know, I'm the oldest of three. And, you know, my mom tells this crazy story. I was born and lived until I was in second grade at Ohio State Married Student Housing, where my dad was getting 15 degrees. And, and I remember... Our neighbor was uh, uh, getting his PhD in psychology, psychiatry, psychiatry. He came over and knocked on my mom's door one day, and I was out back playing, and he said, you know, I've been watching Teresa for the last hour. And she was horrified, like something bad was happening. And, and he said, do you realize she's been riding her bike down the hill with the training wheels, but she didn't really like the training wheels, so she somehow figured out how to take them off. And has been going down that hill like 50 <laughs> times until she mastered it. And my mom said, well, don't all three-year-olds do that? And he goes, no, no, they don't. My mom didn't know I was the oldest, right? So I, I, I don't know what to tell you, but I do think part of it's inherent. Part of it is the ability to trust yourself, to be able to rely on other people, but also have the confidence that, you know what, I'm going to figure this out. And to me, that's what's really rewarding, you know, is figuring it out, working with people and helping them see what could be done. And so I think it is learnable. I just think it's being open to thinking differently about how to solve problems and what does innovation really mean. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the confidence thing is huge. And I was just I was laughing to myself that, you know, a rather contentious discussion um, at, at my place earlier today that really wrapped around and eventually having the confidence to look at your peers and say, okay, acknowledge the need to give you a better plan so you better understand uh, the potential decisions and branches equals. And at the same breath, being able to look at them and say, as long as you acknowledge, we're going to go with my gut feel. Right. And and that's right. that confidence cuts two ways. I, I can give it up yeah. and and get more out there, but at the same time I'm also confident to know that, that I don't know all the answers. Um but I'll not want to see it. And it'll hit me in a nanosecond and I'm okay with that. That yeah. I, I think that's a really good point. In transiting back and forth between the government and the commercial world, can you think of then I would say some of those things that you learned in government that you brought to the commercial space, both both in, in running your own company and now as you know, senior management in a very large successful company, um, that that actually helped them do better. And then I'll come back and ask it the other way: so the things you learn in the commercial world that took out the government that actually helped them be much better. 
yeah, early on, innovation in my career, innovation often meant, all right, let's document all the requirements for how we do things and let's figure out a better, faster, cheaper, cooler way of, of delivering, right? So for me, when I, I think in industry and in government, it's really understanding. It's not about the requirements. It's about understanding what is the mission challenge. And so I think lead, going from government to industry, understanding inherently what the government challenge is. The government challenge isn't, for example, how do analysts get read through more documents every day quicker, right? That, that's not the challenge is how do you take all that data and build a model or a framework to understand what's important and what's not and why and think about unknown unknowns things that you don't know you should care about. And so being able to translate that into industry, so instead of having companies or technologies talk about, oh, but it's really cool or faster, better, cooler, cheaper, that's not really helpful. How do you solve mission challenges? Yeah. How do you put things in the context of what makes mission better and more relevant? And so I think that's one of my unique through skill sets is that ability to translate from government to industry and technology in particular. Um, but I also learned a lot in industry, particularly given that I work with a lot of technology companies, that when I went back in, just as an example, you know, does the government have a customer relationship management capability? You know, uh, and the answer is no, right? Everybody manages what they think of customers separately. Well, but there's lots of cool software, not the least of which is Salesforce, which is part of why I'm now there, that you can just use that. You don't have to roll your own. So helping government folks think about new technologies and new capabilities and how to be agile enough to be able to adapt accordingly that's something that I found was really highly in demand when I went from industry back to government the second time. And how do you do that? And how do you know? I mean, marketing briefings often are filled with, I'm the best machine learning capability on the planet. Just ask me and I'll tell you. And I use machine learning everywhere. And, you know, how do you know whether that's really true or not? So, you know, I, I and there are others, John Edwards, who was the CIO at CIA and is now the deputy uh, chief operating officer, we're very good friends. He and I talked about this a lot because we, we both spent a lot of years in, went to industry, and came back. And the need to figure out how to do more of that just to expose both sides to uh, the art of the possible and ways to think about technology and innovation and also help industry think more about understanding really mission challenges. Yeah. So I, I'm a huge advocate of people going in and out of government because I just think this day and age, there's just too much that's changing too quickly to think you can just sit in a government agency for 30 years and somehow figure it out. It's too hard. Yeah, I absolutely. You're listening to the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast on KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM with Tom Dioro and Peter Newell.
Scholarship America believes that every student, regardless of financial status, deserves an opportunity to go to college. Since its founding, they've distributed more than $4.2 billion to 2.5 million students nationwide. It supports a number of leading programs, including Dollars for Scholars. You can help make a difference to the lives of the students. To learn more, visit scholarshipamerica.org. Hey, we're talking today with Teresa Smetzer, the Vice President of National Security Programs at Salesforce. Now, hey, Teresa, just before we hit that break, you know, we started talking about, you know, the difficulty of, you know, of launching out a, you know, 30-year careers in the government. Um, and I know you do this, and I certainly get a lot of it is um, what I would call our peers, you know, folks, folks who really got into the government for a long haul, or, or even those who are at the you know, as you were, they're at the, the 10 and 12 year mark who are are starting to think about the transition out. What, and you could talk about either population, the, you know, the young folks or the old folks, what, what advice do you have for them, you know, as they're leading up to that decision to make the transition and, and how to find their way and, and the way they ought to look at the world um, to make the best use of, of what they learned while they were in the government now on the, on the other side of the fence? Yeah, good question. I think uh, sometimes people focus too much, particularly coming from government to industry, on things like title or salary or um, you know other perks associated with the job. And I, I really try to dissuade people from even looking at those issues and really figure out what it is that makes them happy. Where do they feel like they add value? What is it that really gets them out of bed in the morning? And what, the other extreme, what is it they absolutely hate? What are the things that just really don't appeal to them? And then figure out also what's the risk tolerance? Do they want something they don't have to worry about? Hey, am I going to have a job a year from now? Or is this or is it the upside of being in, involved in something that's really early stage is just really makes them excited, right? So it's a level of introspection that I really think government people tend not to do naturally, at least I didn't, until they were faced with that decision. And so don't let other people define what makes a successful transition. Figure it out for yourself, right? What really makes you happy? And I think the other part of it is find a company or an organization or an opportunity that really aligns with your values. You know, is it something that's important to you? Is it something you feel like you can get behind? Is it, is it a cause that you care about? Um, Cause that's really going to translate into your ability to be successful and make a difference. So I, I can't tell you how many people I've mentored over the years that have made that transition and fall into the trap of, I want to go to company X because they're really big and they're going to pay me a lot of money and it's a great title. And I'm like, well, who cares about any of that? If you don't like what you're doing, you're not passionate about it, you know, the rest of it will come. So I guess that's my kind of optic on how people should think about moving from from, from government to industry. I I think that that actually kind of fits with with my experience of um, talking to folks who, who you know look at you where you are today and say, "Well, I want to be with you. I want to, I want to have the, the the cool job that pays me a lot, that has all the freedom in the world, that that does things." And you know, when you start asking the first string of questions, like, "Okay, can you move? Um, 
at kids in college, I mean, what are the anchors that are preventing you from just uprooting and and launching forth and doing whatever you want? And, you know, as you, you rip through the litany of, well, I can't because of this, I can't because of that, I can't because of that, um, helping people scale back their expectations for, for what that looks like, though, that they can find something that is a happy compromise um, of where they want to be versus where they are today. But I, right. uh, you know, I think you made a really you know, good point about that. And by the way, you find a company with a culture that you really love. Yeah, and, and then, you know, compensation and all that other stuff, it, it'll, it'll work itself out over time. Um, but if you don't love the culture and those kinds of things, they will never be right for you. Um, Teresa. That's been my experience. Yeah, it absolutely um, makes perfect, perfect sense to me. Um, so let's flash forward a little bit. You're, you've now made the jump again. I want to ask you a question, Teresa. How do you, if you're even this possible. is what happens when I don't watch my wingman here. <laughs> okay. No, no, it's okay. It's fine. All right. Uh, risk tolerance. How do you gauge risk tolerance for the people that you mentor, if it's even possible? You know, I think the first step is talking about it and sort of saying, you know, what, what does risk tolerance really mean to an individual, right? Are you... Are, is it more that you you have a, a eight to five job that's predictable at a place that you have a schedule that's routine that you're comfortable you know executing every day and you know kind of what to expect in terms of your um, job duties and your compensation and so on I mean that's a measure of risk right there's a lot of people and the world needs people who like order and structure and predictability, but it's also a risk measure, right? If you, on the other hand, if you're sort of like, I don't know, I just want to do stuff that's interesting to me and I'll work wherever I want to have flexibility. I want to be able to do things I love. I want to be able to continue to learn and I want to add value and just give me generally what objectives you think uh, you Mr. CEO of a company expect, and I, I'm going to figure it out, right? It's, those are kind of the two extremes of of one degree of risk. Another measure of risk is, you know, I've, I've invested in a startup and had to go in and run the company for a while, and, you know, I never predicted or anticipated I'd have to do that. But, um, you know, so is the company going to be around? Is the company going to be able to continue to pay you? Is, are they one customer away from having to say, okay, thank you for your service, but we can no longer afford you, right? That's another measure of risk is just the predictability of, uh, of business. You can go into a bigger company maybe and have, you know, less of those type of concerns. So, you know, I think talking about it and helping people to see what are the measures or dimensions of risk for them personally to help them start to have the sort of introspection of figuring out what do I really want to do, right? Like everybody envisions they're creative and that they can do cool stuff and their government experience, they should be the CEO and making a bazillion dollars a year. But what does that really mean? So I think a big part of it is having that conversation and helping people work through that. 
Well said. I think there's, you know, there's a lot to be said for ripping off the mystique of, of different roles. I mean, I, you know, we were just talking to a young founder, you know, not too long ago and, you know, watching them go through the transition of a startup founder at a company that was doing pretty well, now looking at the point where he's getting ready to sell the company. And it's almost like, you know, 50 shades of gray is it, right. it is so different from one end to the other and. Yeah, and he's self-admitted because it wasn't always pretty. And he goes, and, and I didn't always like myself in this role because there were things about it that were just unfun. And there were some times that are hard. And, you know, now that I've transited the other side, yes, they asked me, would you do it again? And he goes, I, I, need, I need a break. And I don't know. He goes, I can't, I couldn't envision myself not doing this. But in the same breath said, I just, I can't, I can't send myself back in that role again. And it's almost like stuck, but but it was really a very honest conversation about um, this love hate relationship of of being caught in that environment. And I think it I, it's not just entrepreneurs. I think it's so many people in so many different forms of work have that kind of same issue. They love what they do, but sometimes they really hate it. Yeah, and and they really have to well, sort like out. To- you know, where where are you actually getting your your bang for the buck? Yeah, I think part of it is uh, people that are very driven tend to be 24 by 7. And if you have your own company or you're part of a smaller company, that's really what it is. And so, you know, you have to figure out how to balance um, having a normal life, right? Working out, being with your family, whatever that means. And so, you know, I think having varying roles at different types of organization is is healthy in the sense that you, you have a different level of, of commitment and a different level of, of, of work. Um, cause it, it does get harder and I don't think it's an age thing. I think it's more a matter of quality life. Like I want to go ski. I want to go be able to golf, right? I, I'll work 24 by seven, but as long as I can figure out how to work in things that are important to me too. So I think that's another dimension of this, yeah, yeah, absolutely. burnout problem. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to ask you this, and it's something I've been toying with. I, I've got a, a young couple that we're going to interview here in the near future. I don't know what to call young power couple. They're both both entrepreneurs involved in the network, and 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 I'm really kind of chasing down the the concept of you know marriage and family and um, and having a life while you're involved in this this you know high paced environment. Um, you know, your impression, you know, both from somebody who's worked inside the government as a parent and has taken time off to, to be a parent and run a company as a parent and you know, now with grown kids, um, mm-hmm. the culture differences between those environments and the impact on, um, I would say, your satisfaction both as a, you know, a spouse, a mother, and as an, a, an employee leader, Um has it, from your impression, has it changed dramatically from you know where you were say twenty years ago to to where you are today? Not just because you know your, your kids are growing, but because the culture and the environment are changing. Yeah, I think it's absolutely changed, and this kind of gets back to that risk thing. I remember when I got pregnant with my first kid, I was like, just I just decided, okay. I'm taking six months off. I don't care what they pay me or what the what the policy is or how, you know, I'll figure it out, right? I just decided. 
it's really irrational, it's sort of emotional. That's what I want. And so I remember going to the HR people and saying, this is what I want to do. And they laughed. They said, you can't do that. I said, what do you mean I can't do that? I'll go on LWOP or whatever, leave without pay, whatever, whatever. I don't care about that. Well, but you're not going to have a job. Nobody's going to value you. You'll come back in six months, and what are you going to do? Everybody will have forgotten who you are, and you know, you're going to have this really hard time. And you know, I was like, what is this? Right? I thought it was really weird. And you know, guess what? I did it. And guess what? It was like a flash. It was like two minutes. I got back, and everything was fine. And then I did it again. Only the second time I was the manager, which was even harder. Same deal. I said, I'm taking six months. I, I'm sorry. I'll figure it out. Still my job. Have somebody acting. Well, you know, it, today you wouldn't have those conversations. I think there's much more uh, sensitivity and awareness and consideration of people's ability to manage you know, their personal and professional lives in a way that accommodates, you know, what they need, right? What Some of us have elder care issues and children issues. We have friend issues. We have health issues. How do you balance all of that? And I think historically, at least when I first started, I don't think those conversations really were had. I, th- I think it was all you lived up to certain expectations. And it wasn't the people said you have to do this. It was more just that was the way it was expected and it kind of ties back to that risk thing you know you've got to do what's right for you and be willing to take a risk that the system may may struggle with that but you got to figure it out what's the balance between your personal sort of whatever it might be and your professional and figure it out and i i i thought today I mean, Salesforce is an extremely exceptional company for a lot of reasons, but they're kind of the poster child. There's so much more consideration of a flexible opportunity for to allow people to accommodate their personal and professional interests and still get the job done. So I think it has changed a lot, but people still need to be encouraged to think about what really matters to them and why. There isn't a school solution, if you will. Teresa, can you, uh, again, we'll go back to that risk that seems to be quite a theme through our sh- throughout your show today, is can you mm-hmm. instill it? Are there any ways to instill that in, in people somewhat of a, I'm going to use this word, to kind of hypnotize or hi- hypnotically instill that level of fearlessness into individuals who may not have it if there's a formula for doing it? Well, I could tell you what I've done pragmatically, which is, I don't know if this is bad or good, but this is what I do. And I've tried to teach this to my kids as well as people that work for me or people I mentor. I always do sort of best case, worst case, right? Plan for the worst case, hope for the best case. And get people to think about what is it that you're afraid of? What is the worst thing that could happen that would really just derail your existence? And and what would you do under that circumstance? And what's the best case? And I I think if people think about, they have all these fears of something happening, that they really think about what is the worst case. You know, when I quit government the first time, it was really hard. And I remember thinking to myself, you know what, worst case, I'll go back to government. They've made it clear they'd hire me back in a minute. 
how much risk is this really? Right? So as long as you know that, well, okay, I, I have a plan. I have a strategy. Best case, I'm really going to love it and I'm going to excel. And at some point, I'll come back to government. So I think the practical guidance is getting people to think, what is it you're really afraid of? What is the worst case? And what is the best case? And what would you do in both instances? And then how does that fit with your values and your family and your personal goals and objectives? Just, you know, as a way to frame the thought process. Because um, I, I find a lot of people, including two of my four kids, by the way, they have these irrational fears of things that are never going to happen. And so when you talk through it with them, they're like, yeah, okay, right, Mom. That's a good point. That's probably not going to happen. Um, so talking through with people and getting them to think about what they would do one way or another, I think that's very helpful. Excellent. So, I, you know, Teresa, I'm going to ask one more question before we, we take another break. Um, do you think that those changes are potentially having a positive impact on our ability to draw, um, I hate to say women in tech, and I'm really talking about getting um, women to remain in the workforce more consistently so that they get, they get the opportunities for the senior management jobs or so that they um, get the looks that they need or the experience they need to take on um, higher level roles. Are, are you seeing a change in there? And, and do, you, do you attribute some of that change to those those opportunities or do we still have a long way to go? Well, my personal experiences, I think it has dramatically helped and it's not just women. It's people of all backgrounds that have whatever their issue might be. I mean, I've had just as many men that have required a, a, a flexible work schedule because they've got family issues or elderly parent issues, and they're fearful that if they, if they don't work 24 by 7, you know, they're going to somehow be viewed as lesser. Um, I think historically women ha- have been more impacted by that, largely, I guess, because of having kids. But I think today it's really across the board. I mean, there's a lot of people for a lot of reasons that want a more flexible ability to contribute. And so the more companies or government organizations can provide that flexibility, the more attractive it is. Um, And part of it is, you know, having government agencies in particular look look at coherent sort of practical ways that they can hire people for let's just say five years, and then they go back to industry, and then they can come back, right? How how do you codify that and not have practices that expect people to be hired for 30 years? I have four millennials. None of them would do that. They they just don't do that. It's a different mentality. It's a different time. So that flexibility, particularly to, you know, millennials and younger, is huge because they want to be able to have a life. They don't want to work 24 by 7, and good on them. Yep. I, you know, I've worked too hard probably. Yep. So I, after the break, I want to come back to the concept of talent management, and we'll hit it one more time. This is sure. the Innovators Radio Show and Podcast at KZSU 90.1 FM, Stanford. Sankara Eye Foundation is a four-star rated charity by Charity Navigator, working toward eradicating 
curable blindness in India. India has the largest population of the blind in the world with over 55 million impaired and 8 million totally blind. Fortunately, 80% of these people can be cured. To date, SEF has helped millions in need across rural India, providing people with free eye surgeries at state-of-the-art hospitals. If you'd like to donate, visit giftofvision.org or phone 1-866-SANKARA, that's 726-5272, so 866-726-5272. We're talking today with Teresa Smetzer. Vice President of National Security Programs at Salesforce. For more information, feel free to visit linkedin.com forward slash Teresa Smetzer. So we were talking a little bit about talent, and, and you know, I started down the, the road of retaining and, and providing more opportunities for women, and rightfully so. It really is uh, the diversity of the crowd. And, and you left off with the comment on moving into and out of government service, and I, I really want to latch on to that one because I – yeah, you know, my own experience, I, I go back to my days in rapid equipping force, and I discovered, you know, at one point that we were, you know, putting out major um, support contracts, service contract offerings, but in the duty descriptions, we were asking for people that that knew everything about what we did, and and it kind of, I don't want to say it was incestuous, we kept, we kept getting the same thing. And, and it wasn't until, you know, years later I said, you know, we, sh- we should have asked for somebody who knew nothing about what we did um, in order to get some fresh fresh meat, fresh talent, fresh look um, in the door to work on us. And I, I was going to ask you, Teresa, a little bit about your your experiences both inside and outside the government. Um, but but how you see that changing and, you know, king for the day, what, what would you do to help the government do this right? Well, I think... I mean, to your point, large bureaucratic organizations, whether they're government or or private sector, have this um, affinity for organizational structures and strategies that are sort of sacrosanct, even if they don't really make sense today. So this is the way we've always done it. This is our process. This is how we think about, you know, expertise, fill in the blank. And so they try to codify that by hiring people that know those processes and that understand how sacrosanct those structures and strategies and so on are without really thinking about what they're doing, which is sort of um, uh, locking in cement or or really uh, continuing the process of the same approach where maybe the whole approach, maybe the whole business model needs to change in light of the way the world is today and how emergent technologies have changed the way people engage. And so you want to have more of a diverse sort of workforce that can say, well, you know, you didn't really think about it from this perspective. This, you know, this, this process is too slow or it takes too long or it's not, uh, it doesn't make sense, right? We, how do you how do you have that diversity of talent? And so I think part of it is, especially with the government, is helping them think about um, things like statement of objectives rather than just this is the requirement. We want a contractor or somebody to come in and essentially understand what we've always done and be able to continue doing that, right? So, yeah. but that's bold. That's really 
you know, a lot of the folks involved are not comfortable with that. And it's true in big companies too, by the way, it's not just the government. You know, I, I, I've talked to many people in really big, old 50, 60, 80, hundred year companies that are just paralyzed. And it's the same kind of phenomenon. They just cling to what they know in the past and want to try to hire people that are just like them to be able to maintain that. Not understanding them, they're losing that perspective of people that think differently, that have a different perspective, that maybe aren't as wedded to the status quo. So it's it's a big challenge, and I think it's going to get a lot harder with a lot of the yeah, you know, like fourth that. industrial revolution and all the new technologies. Like just reading earlier today, uh, with, when it's all summed up, estimates are that the venture community put $9 billion in 19 into machine learning related technologies. And that's probably a drop in the bucket, really, when you think about academia and all the other ways in which um, people have internally in companies innovated to bring in machine learning. Well, what is the impact of it? How does the government or a large organization stay on top of that and continuously innovate and bring that in and think differently? Yeah. You're going to yeah. need but diversity of skills and people that can think differently, not the same old, same old. You know, I, I recently, you know, I, I published a commentary on War on the Rocks that, that talked about self-sabotaging systems. Yeah, and one of the things I point out is this over, um, being overly focused on process rather than outcomes leads you down mm-hmm. this slippery slope of, of self-sabotaging yourself. And, I, until you made that comment a few minutes ago, I, I never really related that to talent management and hiring. But it, and I guess what set me with you is if we are overly focused on hiring people who fit with our process and understand the process so everything is smooth, um, we're forgetting that that the outcomes in today's day and age uh, really demand uh, a sense of diversity of thought and action that. You're not going to get that if you're hiring for people who fit the process rather than bringing people in and, and melding the process to them. So, And, and right. I think that was my takeaway from that conversation is, you know, particularly amongst the talent management end, whether you're a, a big company, a small company, a government agency, that you really have to break out of that mode of, I like it to the military where we assign everybody a, a military occupation specialty and make you an expert in that, and that's all you're allowed to do. Because that's all the way that that's right. the way I took it, rather than saying you're a mutt, <laughs> get out there and do things, and we'll figure right. out how to call you something eventually. And um, and I see such a great sense of I don't say frustration, but potential conflict, um, particularly when the government because they're trying to figure out how to do that. And as you mentioned, millennials just are highly intolerant of being pigeonholed into mm-hmm. anything. Yet, mm-hmm. it, it's a tremendous source of frustration for managers, but at the same time, it is a tremendous opportunity that they just have to figure out how to, how to management. Uh, and I, I know Tom's going to come unglued here in a minute. But, oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, no. No. It's, uh, it just comes, a lot of it just comes down to, uh, correct me if you think I'm wrong or challenge it, it's a, a, a level of fear. You know, and that's why the, the the lack of change, the lack of willing to adjust, and the, 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 the not just obsession or passion, but to be energized on a continuous basis, to want to make 
an outcome that you just talked about, Pete. I'm not sure if everyone has that. There's different, they're like almost people are different species. You being one of them, Teresa, and I mean that in a positive way. <laughs> no, it's okay. I've been called worse. <laughs> <laughs> What's your thought on that? Is is it really come down? I'm, I don't, maybe it's too simplistic to say. I just think there's a a, a high level of fear uh, in not wanting to change or in changing and wanting to unlearn. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And I think uh, bureaucracies need process and order and predictability to be able to comply with policies and laws and regulations, and that's all very sensible. But when it becomes so uh, rigid that people can't think and they can't sort of express their ideas, or if the incentive systems don't really reward people for thinking differently... I can think of one time in my career where a very senior officer took a job that was very um, challenging for a lot of reasons. And she took literally what the leadership told her, which was change everything, don't worry about the people, we'll figure it out. And, you know, she didn't last through four months and they pulled her from the job. And people see that. And they're like, okay, this is my reinforcement. Change isn't really valued. It is very risky. I'm better to just stick to what I'm really good at and what I know and do it really well. And so you have to look at changing the incentive. And, you know, there are people, uh, I guess I'm one of them, and I can think of others, who have, it, have excelled in spite of it all and have been able to work within the system, but still be that sort of innovator, how do we support more of that? And I I get back to the same point. I think a lot of it is the diversity of cognitive processes, and it's not even just a more classic uh, definition of diversity. It's diversity in every sense of the word, that people bring different skills and experiences and ideas and really a leader, a manager's role is to be able to figure out how to corral all that into some productive forward movement, but work with each individual in a way that allows them to be who they are. That's the trick, right? So um, it's not easy for a lot of reasons, Um, but I think it's a mandate particularly given all the changes that we're facing now with the data and technology and threats and everything being interconnected and, you know, everything is sort of um, chaotic by definition. So how do you get comfortable with that? Wow. My two cents. No, that's that's phenomenal. Are you kidding? (laughs) Um, Trisha, with the the few minutes we have left, I, I wanted to ask you, you know, as a parting shot, you know, because you have you have such an incredible amount of you know experience, you know, particularly in the digital world. Um, your advice to somebody who is stepping into the role as a CIO, whether it's chief innovation officer, chief information officer, chief IOP, whatever the C-suite level person responsible for dealing with the stress of, of keeping up in a digital world in, in a large organization. What, what would you tell them that, that 
you know, the one thing that they they need to really keep in mind or, or keep focused on? Well, I, th- I think what I've tried to do is come up with a set of core uh, values and principles that you absolutely want to live by or operate by and figure out what are the three or four things that really are the most critical to achieving the outcome, the desired outcome. And then how do you align your organization horizontally, not vertically, to be able to work to that end and and measure it, right? Because federal CIOs have a huge disadvantage. They're often sort of cost centers, right? invested in technology X or platform Y or capability Z, I need to reuse those because that's what I bought. Well, but that's, if you think about it more in terms of outcome and the ROI is as much about outcomes as it is about money, that's a very different rubric. And so how do you start to manage like that that allows you to continuously think about outcomes and um environmental changes that might make you change your mind and then how do you adjust accordingly? That's really hard, but that's kind of where we are, right? And, you know, data is as important as information technology. And so that's the other dimension of the complexity is overlaying technology and data in a way that, that um, fits or aligns to some outcome. Uh, you know, I, I think the people that really are going to make a big difference are the ones who figure out how to do that in a way that is um, that they can make mission impact, a clear mission impact statement, and also manage resources and people and capabilities um, in, a, in a responsible way. Right? So I think it's going to get crazy the next five to ten years. Just the level of new technologies and capabilities and just the whole kind of state of mind of the world better be agile to be able to adjust because it's going to get really interesting. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, excellent. Teresa, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you uh, on our show today. Thank, thank you, you very much. Yeah. Well, thank and, you. I've enjoyed it and uh, I, hopefully it's been helpful. Absolutely. And thanks for kicking up your training wheels too. <laughs> crazy right comes full circle yeah. comes full circle you've I been know. listening to the innovators radio show and podcast our guest today has been Teresa Smetzer vice president of national security programs at Salesforce Teresa has performed as director of digital futures at the CIA's doctorate of digital innovation and began her career at CIA and served in various roles as an analyst technologist and senior management Teresa earned her bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and master's degree in chemical engineering at the University of Texas at Austin. Hook them. For more information, feel free to visit linkedin.com forward slash Teresa Smetzer. Join us again next time when we welcome another mission-driven entrepreneur, thought leader, or game changer committed to smart ideas, innovation, and getting out of the building. I'm Tom DiOro. Pete? And I'm Pete Newell. The Innovators Radio Show and Podcast is recorded at Stanford University's studios in Stanford, California, and on location. The recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, chief engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Lexi Nealon. And the executive producers and hosts of The Innovators are Tom DiOrio and yours truly, Pete Newell. 
If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. 